Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? When I was a kid, I had a friend named Paul who had it all. A big house where we'd play in his G.I. Joe-themed bedroom replete with accessories like jeeps, tanks, helicopters, and airplanes, which, of course, hung from the ceiling. In the summer, there was a swimming pool, a treehouse, a basketball net. The winter, a basement dedicated to mini hockey, complete with boards and ice blue carpeting to make it easy on the knees and realistic to the eyes. He had everything. New clothes, Reebok pumps and Nike Air Max, doting parents serving bowls of homemade caramel corn, pitchers of iced Kool-Aid while we played Nintendo. As a result of finding Paul's life to be the kind of life I wished I was having, I found myself, for some reason, behaving like Paul. This happened a few times early on where I had an identity crisis and latched on to another kid's persona, mimicked their traits, which maybe doesn't sound too unusual for a kid until you hear the part where I stole his clothes and got busted immediately because I wore them around him. Doesn't sound too strange until you hear that after seeing him come to school with a milk mustache and some mustard on his lip, I came in the next day with the same look. Before school, tilting a sip of cow juice to my upper lip, then dumping the rest in the sink, using my finger to apply an insane mustard mole. It really was pathetic. This is not the first time on this podcast that I've given an example of how lucky I was as a child, as a young man, to not have crossed paths with some of the characters we cover here. I'm just thankful that I grew out of my odd behaviors, my troubling mindsets, and didn't become one of the dark characters myself. Forget becoming a victim. On this episode, my thoughts are that I'm thankful I didn't become a perpetrator. Because the kid I just described to you sounds like the type that drives into the world sideways, swerving every which way until the wheels fall off, the guardrails shatter, and his middle name suddenly becomes a part of his every introduction. John Wayne Gacy style, Wesley Allen Dodd style. Two killers I admire, by the way, greatly. <laughs> it's just, that's a joke right there. You see the screws loose. Not out of the woods. After all, maybe. I was a good kid. Exceptionally good by all accounts, but it sure does freak me out to remember how unstable I often felt, how desperate I was for solid footing. There's something in that tucked away section of me that often imparts an odd understanding of degenerates. Not a respect or a kinship, but an understanding. It comes in handy to know a little of the dark arts of those who practice them, but in the end, there's always going to be a few that we never see coming, 
as they have no real rhyme or reason, no trigger, no signal for what they'll dole out. They're just bad at the drop of a hat, furious in an instant, murderous without hesitation, proud to be unhinged, and scariest of all, empty in their natural state, practically invisible until they're full of blackness. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 017, a despicable abomination. Maddie Marino's grandson, Jimmy, was always trouble for someone. As far back as could be recalled, he was raising hell. He stole toys from his daycare, was expelled from kindergarten for fighting with other children. When he reached his mid-teens, Jimmy found it difficult to retain friends, being the type to casually put his cigarette out on another kid's face as a bit of fun, this is no surprise. And Then there was that pesky habit of burglarizing homes and terrorizing the occupants. He'd been accused of attempting to rape an elderly woman at knife point when he was 15 and spent two months in juvie as a result. At 17, he earned a sentence of two years after another aggressive B&E hitched on him. But upon his release in December of 1979 at the ripe old age of 19, Jimmy was advertising himself as a tamed wild child and by April of 1980 was spending his free time engaged in wholesome activities, such as visiting with his grandmother. Aside from the fact that he was rarely without a can of beer, a habit Granny found distasteful, and that Jimmy had attempted to sexually assault a woman that could have been in her cribbage club, things were good between Jimmy and his grandmother. So when he called from the Florida apartment he shared with his mother four doors down, asking for a needle and white thread, Grandma told him to come on over. Jimmy did just that all swampy with the charm he reserved for his granny. He kissed her upon entering, chatted pleasantly about this and that, told her he needed to mend some shorts, then asked to use her phone. Moments later, when he darted from around the wall where the phone was kept, Maddie assumed Jimmy was going to kiss her again. That boy was so affectionate. But instead, the putrid spawn grabbed her by the throat, uttered not a single word, and grinned with chunky white teeth in her terrified face as he attempted to choke the life out of her. When that didn't work, and despite her pleadings of, quote, Jimmy, it's my money you want, take it and go, he grabbed a rolling pin, of all things, and bludgeoned the poor woman's head with it. Still silent, still grinning. If it hadn't been for another grandmotherly cliche, the large foam rollers Maddie had in her hair, the blows from that bar of wood would have brained her indeed. Of this attack, an investigator later said, I'll never forget that crime scene. I remember the rolling pin, the blood. I think he left her for dead. Yet, a year later at trial, Jimmy's attorney would convince a jury that Granny was indeed brained from the assault. The poor old woman was mistaken. There was no way her beloved grandson was the culprit. And rotten Adolph Jimmy Rohde Jr., who would someday be called a despicable abomination, 
was let scot-free to grin like a deranged devil in the faces of many more women in the years to come. This wasn't the first time, and it wouldn't be the last, that slippery Jim Rohde would slide through the cracks. His first attack back in 1977 was on Elise Eloise Stock, and it had left the retired school teacher Leary but alive. She'd been in her Fort Lauderdale home when the knife-wielding 15-year-old version of Jimmy had pounced on her after removing a screen and entering through a back window. He'd wrapped his hands around her throat and tried to rape her, but Alice fought him off and he fled. She'd stayed vigilant after that, neighbors said. Kept her place hemmed up like Fort Knox. Was slightly jumpy, even. But it didn't change her heart. She was still gentle, still kind. Still rode her three-wheeled bicycle outside her home with her little poodle riding shotgun. She still maintained relationships with her neighbors. Because of that connection to the people living nearby, on the morning of November 29, 1980, as neighbor Russell Smith made a cup of coffee in his home across the street, he noticed a light on in Alice's house. There was never a light on at 6.30 a.m. Russell picked up the phone and called her, but got no answer. So he enlisted his wife to go over with the emergency key Alice had given them. Find out what's going on, he told her. But that neat white house where a sweet old lady lived alone belched out Russell's wife moments after she'd entered. He later recalled, She came screaming out of the house. Call the police, she said. What officers found inside was the battered, nude body of the dead Alice Stock. She was in her bed. She'd been sexually assaulted. Her neck bore bruises, her windpipe crushed. The killer apparently entered through a back window after removing a screen. The exact same scenario that played out in her home two years earlier was revisited on Alice's final day. Except this time, it was a success. And the horror realized there would play out time and time again in the 16 years that would pass before a killer was nabbed with that same chunky smile being the last thing at least five more dying women would see. Jimmy got away with the murder of Alice Stock. He was suspected in the killing, detectives later said, but there wasn't enough to charge him. Then Jimmy attacked his grandmother and got away with that too. But it was his burglary compulsion that always ended badly for him. He was always getting busted for break-ins. Jimmy's sticky, clumsy fingers eventually got him locked up again, though this time he was going to the big house. The Florida Department of Corrections was in the spotlight at the time. One of the most notorious serial killers to stalk the earth was confined on death row there in the slangs of two sorority sisters. Theodore Ted Bundy, the prolific cross-country killer in the tan Volkswagen, would confess to at least 30 killings, many in the Pacific Northwest. But Bundy wasn't the only serial butcher on death row there. A man named Gerald Stano was also waiting to ride the lightning. Though Stano, a.k.a. Paul Zinninger, wasn't nearly as well known as good old Ted, Stano's body count was more impressive. Between 1969 and 1980, the New York-born killer with a fondness for Donna Summer's music cruised the streets of New Jersey and Florida in America's dorkiest car, a gremlin. 
He charmed prostitutes into his psychotically tidy hatchback then, at the tiniest perceived slight, like, I don't know, blinking. He killed them. By the time 2,500 volts coursed through his body in 1998, nine years after Bundy had met the same fate, Stano was tied to 81 murders, 31 for which he was convicted. But before those two were roasted, they were housed near one another on death row, and by some twisted twist of fate, plopped dead center between them, was our troubled Jimmy. While serving time for burglary, he'd gotten caught with escape tools, and there was an attempt to sexually assault a female guard. So off to maximum security went Jimmy Rohde. The cell that fate reserved for him, for at least two months, was exactly between Bundy and Stano. From Stano, perhaps, he'd picked up the idea of changing his name. Upon Jimmy's release, he would become Caesar Francisco Baroni. From Bundy, he picked up tips on how to evade capture. Of their relationship, an officer was quoted as saying, He was basically a new and improved killer after he spent time with Bundy. The Florida-born-and-bred Jimmy also apparently picked up a love for the Pacific Northwest. Though Bundy had ravaged Oregon and Washington before satisfying his satanic urges in Utah and Florida, there was still plenty left in Oregon to defile. As soon as Jimmy was free, he headed there and married a girl he was pen pals with while in prison. He met the misguided woman through a singles ad given to him by Bundy himself. And, of course, while in the PNW, Jimmy, oh wait, I'm sorry, Caesar Baroni, began to hunt the same ground as his hero. For a short time after his release from prison in 1987, his only apparent connection to murder was the time he'd spent with Ted. Detectives said he would brag to people about how close the two had been. Jimmy would light up like a schoolgirl when he talked about his friend. The ever-affable and always bloodthirsty. Bundy. Former reporter Eric Apolitegi put it this way. Could be in the presence of perhaps the, the country's most famous serial killer would be unsettling for most people. I bet it was a thrill, man. I bet it was an inspiration. With this fourth lease on life, Jimmy spent at least a year on the seeming straight and narrow. Under the name Baroni, he hid his past and joined the U.S. Army, becoming an EMT for an elite ranger unit. But his diversion from deviance was short-lived. After flashing his dick at and fondling an 80-year-old woman in 1990, Army officials checked his background, learned his criminal past, and sent him packing after 19 months. It was following his move to Portland, Oregon, that the tides had changed. Jimmy couldn't keep his darkest demons at bay any longer. While his wife was home with her newborn son, Jimmy, now using his army training to work in nursing homes, began to unravel. In April of 1991, he killed again. What sort of hell is it to be forgotten after death, when the act of your death plays in a loop in the memory of your killer? If your end comes in the throes of a madman's fantasy, how insulting it would seem to be reduced to a mere footnote on your killer's resume. Margaret Schmidt, 62, or 61, it didn't seem to matter to the people who wrote about her at the time, 
lived alone in a pink house in a Portland suburb when evil slithered in through a window, then tracked scrawny size eight and a half Reebok tennis shoes through the talcum powder knocked from the sill. No one heard her cries, and she cried, no doubt, as the beast defiled her, devoured her. She cried, no doubt, even after her last breath was gone. We have to hope that there's some peace even after such a grim end. But there has to be concern that she somehow still cries. To this day. Margaret was raped, then strangled. Her splayed body found in her bed the next morning by a home health care nurse who was helping the old gal as she recovered from a broken leg. Margaret's tattered nightgown was at her neck. Blood stained the bed beneath her head and the pillow that covered her face. And that's it. That's the extent of Margaret's description in available news articles. If she had a family, loved to play bingo, kept an award-winning garden, gave the best advice out there, we don't know. We just know she's dead. That she died a gruesome death. That the terror that undoubtedly filled her is too much to imagine. That her last vision, as her mind raced and she either screamed to live or screamed to die, was a chunky, slobbering grin accented by odious eyes. The newspaper article announcing Margaret's slang was seven inches at best. That's a very short story for a life ripped away. It gave her name, that she was found dead in her home, and that the medical examiner determined that she died of asphyxiation. The end. Jimmy has succeeded in not only wiping her off the face of the earth, but from history. And poor Margaret Schmidt's destruction, it seemed, was the Gateway drug for this recovering addict. Within six months he would steal another life, though this killing, so macabre, so brazen, would be a building block to his undoing. Bundy's tips, if Bundy indeed gave him tips, did little to prevent Jimmy from being a blundering idiot. Ted must not have canceled his pupil to ride solo, little buddy, and resist the urge to brag. As it was happening, it could not have seemed real. It was about 3 a.m. Midwife Martha Browning Bryant, 41, had just helped deliver another baby at Tuality Memorial Hospital and was now on her way home in the pitch-black darkness of a pre-dawn October 9, 1992. A white muscle car appeared in the rearview mirror as Martha steered her green, ironic Volkswagen bug along a stretch of suburban road that ran alongside the airport runway in Hillsborough, Oregon. Behind the wheel of the white shark, of course, was Jimmy Rohde. Here was Martha, just heading home after doing one of the most wholesome jobs in the universe. And here was Jimmy, speeding along behind her, propping his door open with his foot and sticking out his face with that chunky, maniacal grin. And a spray of bullets pierced the Volkswagen's back window then continued through the passenger's side, one boring through the midwife's shoulder, blasting through a rib and a lung, before joining its 9mm compadres on the floorboard. The Volkswagen, pierced by 17 rounds in all, careened across the road, crunching to a stop astride a sidewalk. She wasn't dead. Not yet. One can only surmise Martha's disbelief and her sudden realization that she'd been shot, but before she could regain her wits, 
The door to the Volkswagen was yanked open, and someone was dragging her from the car, shoving her into another one. A rescuer? No. There was too much glee in this man's eyes. The muscle car sped a few blocks as Jimmy giddily danced behind the wheel. Then he stopped the car, pulled Martha from the back seat, and began trying to rape her. Mrs. Bryant, covered in blood, likely gasping from the collapsed lung, wasn't as alluring as Jimmy once had imagined. Can't stick my dick in that mess, the bastard decided, so he did the next best thing to get his rocks off. He used a twenty-two caliber pistol and shot her in the temple, leaving her body lying in the road. The gunshots and crash of the bug woke a nearby resident who looked out the window and saw a white muscle car driving away. It wasn't long before police were alongside the Volkswagen pondering the bullet holes and the blood-soaked driver's seat. Another call reported a body in the road less than a half a mile away. There, the mortally wounded Martha was found, her pants and underwear pulled to her ankles, the life she had left in her slowly leaving. Her killer in the wind. A cellmate of Jimmy's three years down the road would describe for detectives the thrill Jimmy got from reliving the events. He would jump around. He'd jump up on the bunk. He'd rub his crotch. You know, he was enthralled with it. It's what he lives for, man. And you can tell he's a pervert. That's his whole thing in life. He would also tell of Jimmy's fascination with Bundy and details of Martha's death. He's infatuated with him. Is he idolizing? Yes, absolutely. Has Peroni uh, talked to you about a murder involving a nurse or a midwife? In death, he shot her. Where? In the temple. Shante Woodward didn't stand a chance. Just 23 years old and not yet soiled by the darkness in the world, Shante was alone and slightly buzzed when a predator set his sights on her. Having gotten rid of the muscle car and now with a 20-year-old tag-along named Leonard Darcel, a.k.a. Germ, Jimmy pulled his Hyundai up to a bus stop alongside Shante. Germ, who'd seen this girl at music venues around town, greeted her from the passenger seat. It was after 2 a.m. The club was closed. Shante had a long wait for the next bus. Earlier in the evening... Jerm had stopped Jimmy from raping his friend at gunpoint. But after beers and weed with some other friends, that had all been forgotten by the time Shante's path crossed theirs. And before long, we'd all learned that the insatiable killer wasn't done just yet. Was never done. What neither Jerm nor Shante knew was how dangerous Jimmy was. Though the display just hours before must have given Jerm an inkling, they couldn't have known that a week earlier, Jimmy had climbed through a window at a nursing home, molested a bedridden 72-year-old woman, then climbed back out with her TV. The least of his sins. They had no idea Jimmy had already amassed notches on his murder belt. Germ later told police that as they pulled up next to Shante, a man who was chatting her up walked away. After saying hello, Germ asked if she knew the guy, and Shante said no. Being the chivalrous sort when it suited him, Germ offered Shante a ride. The men looked nice enough. 
Germ looked like a good kid and was cute in a dirty punk rock kind of way. For a girl who spent much of her time attending music shows in a pre-grunge Portland, he must have looked like a guy in a band. Shantae agreed to the ride, though the driver looked like an unhinged version of unhinged Tom Cruise. And the trio tooled around town for a couple of hours, listening to music and drinking. About 5 a.m., with more than a buzz going, Jimmy pulled into the driveway of his apartment complex, and the three went inside. Germ would later tell police he and Shantae hit it off. So much so, in fact, they moved into a bedroom for more beer, music, and privacy. Their intimacy was interrupted by an irritated, growling Jimmy Rohde. Quote, Hey, it's my money, my beer, my place, and you're making off with the girl? With their cue to wrap it up, the youngsters quickly dressed and joined a seething Jimmy in the front room. Germ then sheepishly asked if he could use the car and take Shantae home. Jimmy was fondling his pistol at the time, and before anyone except the devil knew what was happening, Jimmy was forcing the girl into the back bedroom. Germ could hear Jimmy ordering Shantae to get undressed, then heard what Germ thought was, quote, rough sex. When Jimmy and the girl emerged not long after, Jimmy declared now he'd take her home. He lied. On the way to the car, he grabbed her by the hair, pulled out the pistol again, and jammed it into her back. Germ said he tried to convince Jimmy to just drop Shantae off somewhere, but the murderous wheels were already in motion. After driving to a secluded spot along a highway, Jimmy ordered the girl out of the car and ordered Germ out too and made him watch as Jimmy beat Shantae, demanded her back to her feet, then hit her again. The whole time, as a train may be passed, Germ said Jimmy was pointing the gun at her, and Shantae was pushing it out of her face, pleading for her life. Then, without any provocation, he put the weapon to her chin a final time and pulled the trigger. Shantae, her life extinguished, crumpled to the ground. A giddy Jimmy dragged the body from the road to a ditch alongside the guardrail and told Germ to get back into the car. Again, Germ saw yet another side of his twisted friend he'd never seen before. Pure joy at what he'd done. As a souvenir, Jimmy excitedly handed his stunned companion the twenty-two caliber bullet casing from the round that ended Shantae's life. Later, in a confession that landed him in prison for twenty to life, Germ told police that he didn't want the memento. Quote. So I threw it on top of the shed back at the place where we lived. Police recovered the casing and matched it to Shantae's killing. Something ramped up Jimmy's behavior in late 1992, early 1993. Perhaps it was the increasing use of LSD, cocaine, meth, more likely, it was becoming harder for him to live a lie, like he was some normal guy just living a regular life. The mask was cracking. The act had worn thin. In a matter of four months, in addition to the mundane act of his wife leaving him, Jimmy had killed at least two women, molested at least two others, and soon he'd get a third notch in his death belt. 
only with this one, fear would be his weapon. 63-year-old Betty Williams lived doors down from an apartment Jimmy shared for a short time with a waitress named Lorraine, who he'd met at his steakhouse. He'd helped Betty move furniture before and had played the part of good boyfriend to Lorraine, Betty's co-worker. On January the 6th, a week after Shantae's killing, Jimmy could no longer keep up the charade. He went to Betty's apartment and gained access to the woman with beers. The 63-year-old was a big drinker, and Jimmy used that to his advantage. After spending a few hours in her apartment, long enough for Betty's blood alcohol level to register more than four times the legal limit to drive in the U.S., let's face it, that's blackout drunk, Jimmy attacked as Betty relieved herself on the toilet. After pulling down his pants and shoving his penis in her face, he pulled out his gun and attempted to force her to perform oral sex on him, a classic Jimmy move. Betty was terrified, not by the dick probably, but by the man transformed into beast before her eyes. In reenactments to his cellmates, one of his favorite pastimes, a laughing Jimmy would mockingly clutch at his chest as he described what happened next. An informant said, and she was just scared. She was real scared. And all of a sudden, she, you know, she could, he could tell she was starting to have, you know, a heart attack. Betty's body fell into the bathtub, her pants around her ankles, one leg tangled in the shower curtain. Hours later, her son would discover his mother dead this way. The activity at Betty's place had the complex buzzing. As Lorraine and the other neighbors commiserated over poor Betty's untimely death, Jimmy kept a close watch on the cops, all the while smiling to himself knowing what he'd done. Feigning sadness, he'd bragged to other tenants in the complex he'd walked past Betty's apartment as she sat wasted on her couch and shut her door for her. Yeah, it's crazy how drunk she was, and I was the last guy to see her alive. Police decided Betty had died of a heart attack. An autopsy confirmed that to be the case, but before long, the manner of death would change from natural to homicide. Once police found their way, to Jimmy Rohde. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by uh, the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today all right everybody badlands food i've been thinking about getting a dog with my 
little family, we are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. Now, with the body count mounting in the Portland suburb of Hillsborough, investigators had formed a task force to figure out who the killer was. Though the murders and molestations didn't follow a pattern, the fact they were happening with such frequency in a town where such things didn't happen became the pattern. Dead women were piling up, and rapes and attempted rapes were too. The big break came a month after Betty's death. Jimmy's former landlady, who lived upstairs from an apartment she rented out below, was home alone when she showed up and asked to use the phone, saying his car broke down nearby. She'd always liked the younger man. He never caused her any problems, and once when her epileptic daughter was having a seizure, Jimmy had come in and prevented the girl from reportedly swallowing her tongue. Though that may be more myth than reality, since you can't actually swallow your tongue. But Jimmy, much like Bundy, was adept at using charm to woo his victim. Once inside her place, he pounced. Jimmy was in the midst of attempting to rape the 58-year-old woman when she lied that a friend would be back at any moment from a run to the store. That, coupled with the fact that he couldn't get hard thanks to the meth he was snorting, resulted in him running away. She called the police and told them exactly who had attacked her. Investigators noted the similarities in the slave's attack to the cases before the task force. The evidence collected thus far included 22 caliber and 9mm rounds, Size 8.5 Reebok shoe prints with a distinctive defect in the sole taken from the Schmidt scene, and the description of a muscle car from the Bryant crime scene. But now, thanks to this terrorized woman, they had a name. Unfortunately, for all the stupid shit he'd done, Jimmy wasn't stupid enough to go home. He didn't return to the shithole he'd started living in with a guy named Paul Hutchison, described as smelling as nasty as he looked. The two became roommates after Jimmy's latest relationship failed. I guess it's hard to be a good mate when you spend your nights stalking the streets for women to kill. Who knew? But even with the heat on, even when he should have been laying low, Jimmy's shark-like appetite couldn't be satiated. A week later, in the very neighborhood where he'd killed Margaret Schmidt, 
Jimmy used the same phone ploy to get inside the home of an 83-year-old woman. This time, he said he'd had an accident and needed to call 911. He looked so frantic and worried that despite the late hour, despite the nagging pitch he felt, kindness sometimes prevails when it shouldn't, and she let him in. As soon as the door opened, Jimmy, his eyes likely black thanks to pupils dilated by meth and his corrupt soul, grabbed her around the neck and began to rip at her clothes. But this attempt, too, was foiled. This gal, the oldest in his hit list, had an advantage. Around her neck, she wore a personal alarm that would alert rescuers if she fell. She punched the button, setting off the alarms and causing Jimmy to run out faster than he'd run in. Her description, of course, matched the man the cops were already looking for. It took only four days for officers to find the boasting loser drinking at a local bar. The tab paid, no doubt, with the money he took from his last victim's purse. He was booked for the attempted rapes and taken to the interrogation room. There's a misconception about the impact Bundy had on Jimmy Rohde, a.k.a. Cesar Baroni. It's either a misconception or a conscious spin by the people who covered him to tie him to a more notorious killer and therefore make him into a bright, shiny object. By the time Jimmy met up with Ted and the more prolific Gerald Stano, he'd already been raping and killing. It's more likely that the gruesome trio were like a coffee clatch of old ladies sharing stories about the grandkids. Except in this instance, they were comparing what it's like to kill women, boasting not about the latest afghan they knitted, but the boners they got from taking lives. If anything, Jimmy was able to reveal all the dirty details of the devilish acts he'd already committed, not the sanitized yet still ugly versions he shared with the common folk he drank beers and snorted lines with. In those stories, he painted himself more like a mobster than a monster. But with Bundy and Stano, among monsters, he was home. The only definite connection that can be seen between his stint in prison with those killers and his life afterward is that he moved to the Pacific Northwest where Bundy got his start, and he changed his name like Stano. Any lessons he reportedly got from Bundy or Stano on how to hide his crimes he must not have taken seriously, because despite the lives he stole, the jackass fortunately got caught quickly, and the murderous friends with whom he shared his cool stories of killing proved to be his biggest downfall. With investigators learning Jimmy's name from his former landlady, a search revealed he ran around with a street kid named Len Darcel, a.k.a. Germ. Eventually, Germ would end up in the interrogation room after being picked up in Washington State on a warrant. He wasn't with investigators long before he spilled his guts, tone-deafly announcing, quote, What I'm about to tell you will change my life. Because I guess watching an innocent young girl being brutalized before being extinguished wasn't life-changing enough. Germ told the details of Shantae's slaughter, going so far as to describe where he tossed the shell casing Jimmy had given him as a souvenir. Investigators, like I said, would retrieve that casing, and a ballistics expert would declare it a match to the bullet pulled from her skull. Then, in addition to Germ, cellmates from Jimmy's various jaunts in the joint, 18 in all, would come forward with details of the stories he told as he held court over the regular jail population of dope users and drunk drivers. No less than six men who had served time with the jabbering Jimmy were subpoenaed by the prosecution in the trials that would seal his fate. Among those men was one who, probably with a cluck and an upnod, made sure detectives knew that 
If this was just some drug killing, he'd have kept quiet. Before describing how Jimmy reacted while revealing details in Martha Bryant's killing. He would jump around. He'd jump up on the bunk. He'd rub his crotch. You know, he was enthralled with it. It's what he lives for, man. And you can tell he's a pervert. That's his whole thing in life. After serving 17 years for his part in Shante's killing, Jerem shared a similar euphoric reaction from Jimmy. Quote, He was pounding the steering wheel, punching the ceiling, hooting and hollering, all amped up. Locked up on the attempted rape charges and now being accused of murders, Jimmy, of course, professed his innocence. It was that age-old song and dance that he was being set up, that the old lady who identified him was actually trying to seduce him. Yes, he was the last one to see Betty Williams alive, but she was fine, just drunk on her couch when he saw her. Germ wasn't to be trusted. That kid's just a wannabe tough guy. Jimmy swore he didn't know a thing about Martha Bryant or Margaret Schmidt. Of course, his stories behind bars were different. Another inmate testified that Jimmy stated the Green River Killer was, quote, just a punk. At the time of Jimmy's pronouncement, the Green River Killer was still on the loose, racking up bodies in the Seattle area. When DNA finally ended Gary, the Green River Killer Ridgeway's rampage in 2001, he confessed to killing more than 70 teen girls and women in Washington State during the 80s and 90s. Coincidentally, Jimmy's bunk buddy Bundy, and like Ridgeway, another son of Satan from the Pacific Northwest, offered his insight, Hannibal Lecter-like, by inviting the Riverman's investigators into the mind of a serial killer. In offering his help, Bundy reportedly wrote from the Florida death row, Don't ask me why I believe I'm an expert in this area. Just accept that I am, and we'll start from there. What a coy fuck. But Bundy's suggestion that the killer was likely going back to the bodies to have sex with the corpses, a pastime Ted engaged in too, proved true. This insight into a serial killer's thought process is said to have helped investigators understand who they were dealing with in Gary Ridgway. Quite frankly, Jimmy's boast that he was better than Ridgway was laughable. Jimmy was too fucked up on dope to be as prolific as Bundy and Ridgway. A blessing, really. To make matters worse for the worst matter to hit Hillsborough, Jimmy's bumbling drunken roommate helped build the case against him. When contacted by police, Paul Hutchison turned over the 9mm Browning pistol that was later tied to the Bryant slang. The 22 was found in Jimmy's car. Jimmy was so incensed when he found out what Paul had done that he berated him with an angry phone call from the jail, then ordered the simpleton to burn down their apartment because, as Paul told police, quote, there was something in there that could link him to a murder. But Paul did such a shit job that cops arrested him and were able to retrieve the killer's preferred murder footwear. White Reebok tennis shoes, a staple of a 90s wardrobe along with acid wash jeans and pop collars, except those sneakers included that unique defect in the sole that matched the prints left in Margaret Schmidt's bathroom. Jimmy was likely also angry that the men he'd shared his stories with the prison had turned out to be snitches, but as one investigator put it, I think he was convinced that nobody would tell on him. But this was way over the line, even for criminals. It was just so sick. Regular people came forward after his arrest, too. The girl that germs saved from being raped the same night that Shantae had died told police of her near-death experience. 
and a fellow midwife at Tuality Hospital told the jury she saw Jimmy, a.k.a. Cesar Baroni, there two nights before Martha Bryant was killed. The woman said she was about to leave the hospital after an early morning delivery when she spotted a creepy man staring at her through the glass doors. The woman said she waited until he was gone before rushing to her car, except once inside it, she saw him standing in the parking lot watching her. She told jurors that as she drove home along the same route Martha took on the last night of her life, a car flashing its lights came up fast behind her, briefly pulled up alongside her, then dropped back again near where Martha's body would be found. Her story ended with seeing the white muscle car turning off at the next intersection. In three separate Oregon trials beginning in February of 1994 and continuing until December 1995, Caesar Baroni was convicted of four slayings and three sexual assaults. He received three death sentences, despite his defense attorney ineloquently arguing against the ultimate death penalty. There is greater good to be had than kill and be killed. Somewhere in his brain is the key. We need that brain, and we need it alive, to unlock that key. On top of death, Caesar Baroni also received two sentences of 45 years for the sexual assaults. And that should have been the end of it. But it wasn't. There was still time for the infamy seeking killer to get his name shining in the headlines, like his predecessors. With Jimmy locked up for life and hopefully death in Washington, Florida investigators were building their case against him in the Alice Stock killing from nearly two decades earlier. But there was another unsolved homicide of an elderly lady they linked Jimmy for, too. On January the 6th, 1980, 85-year-old Josefina Versheldon was found beaten and stabbed to death in her tidy Fort Lauderdale home, seven miles south of Alice Stock's place. The Denmark-born widow had been stabbed twice in the neck, once in the back, and left dying on her bedroom floor. Police theorized that around midnight, Josephina was awakened by an intruder who entered through her sliding glass door. With her widowed daughter-in-law out with friends for the evening, there was no car in the driveway, making it appear as if no one was home. The killing terrified the neighbors, including the couple immediately next door to the Sheldon house who'd moved in just a week earlier, only to move out the day after her death. Josephina was remembered as a sweet lady who worked in her garden and, despite losing her husband a decade earlier, had remained upbeat. Friends said, quote, She was a beautiful woman. I can't see why anyone would want to murder an 85-year-old woman. All you'd have to do is place your hand on her if you wanted to stop her. Ultimately, Jimmy wasn't charged in Josephina's slaying, but a Broward County grand jury indicted him and a ham sandwich in the Alice Stock killing. He was sent from Oregon to Florida to face the charges where he put on a bit of a show, emulating his hero Bundy by insisting he would represent himself. After losing a motion to dismiss the charges based on a violation of his right to speedy trial, the dopey Jimmy Rohde asked the judge for a public defender. Bundy, for all his faults, and there were, of course, many, at least had attended law school. Florida prosecutors were eager to try Jimmy Rohde, a.k.a. Cesar Baroni, I must keep on reminding you, in the Sunshine State. If Baroni was convicted and sentenced to death there, it appeared more likely that he'd take a seat in Old Sparky, 
the same chair that cooked a leather-hooded Bundy in 89. No one had been put to death in Oregon since a moratorium on executions was put in place in 1962. By contrast, during the time Oregon was being wishy-washy about the death penalty, Florida had executed 33. Having followed the Oregon case from afar, Florida reporters were eager for an interview, and Jimmy obliged. He, of course, spoke ad nauseum of his innocence. During an interview with the Florida Sun Sentinel, Jimmy kept a steady gaze on the reporter as he leaned forward, nearly touching the glass that separated them in the visitation booth at the Broward County Jail. He denied every heinous crime he was ever accused of, including the assault on the female prison guard years earlier that resulted in his bromance with Bundy and Stano. In the guard attack, Jimmy explained, he walked in on another inmate committing the assault, but because he lived by the rules of the street, he'd rather serve the time than be labeled a rat. I've never snitched on anyone. I've never snitched on myself. I've always kept my mouth shut. He bragged about his marriage and son, about his stint in the army, about his successful transition to civilian life, and he bemoaned the false allegations against him leaving out the parts of the story where he couldn't keep a job or a girl or his dick out of the faces of dying elderly women or stay off the coke, booze, and math. I had everything going for me. And then, boom. He said he had alibis for all the crimes in Oregon and Florida, not bothering to explain how his shoe print ended up in both Alice and Margaret's homes or the bullets that tied him to the crimes or how Martha Bryant's blood was swabbed from his twenty-two caliber pistol. He even claimed to know who the real killers were. But again, he ain't no rat. When asked why he didn't produce any alibis or even take the stand in his defense, Jimmy had an answer, albeit a stupid one, for that too. When I get a fair jury, then I'll put on a defense. His goal in Florida, he said, was to get an acquittal, then use that as a quote, Momentum to go back and win Oregon appeals. I know people say it all the time in prison that they're not guilty, but that's my position. Jimmy didn't have to worry about Florida, however. By 2000, the Broward County case against him had fallen apart due to the weakness of the evidence. Plus, he was already facing the death penalty in Oregon, so the prosecutor said, We believe this was the appropriate thing to do. The age of the case has substantially affected the availability of evidence to obtain a conviction. And so, Jimmy Rohde, who grew up to be the killer Caesar Baroni, was left to rot away in an Oregon prison cell, filing appeal after appeal, each one denied by the courts. No change ever came in the Florida killing of Josephina Versheldon. He was also never charged in another Oregon murder of an 83-year-old woman named Elizabeth Wasson who, just like Josephina, was found in the home she once shared with her late husband with two stab wounds to her neck and smothered to death on September 23, 1992, a month before the midwife's killing. And Jimmy was never charged in the deaths of his ex-wife's mother, though he was found to have stolen her ATM card, withdrawing a total of three grand before and after she was found dead in her home. The cause of death was initially ruled natural causes, but with a notorious slayer as her son-in-law, investigators had her remains exhumed just to be sure. The exercise was pointless, however. A pathologist was unable to determine the exact way in which Joyce Scarborough was killed on February the 4th, 1993, just weeks before Jimmy's arrest. 
His notoriety got one last shot in the spotlight in 2001. United World of Bennington, a European clothing line with a penchant for social justice campaigns, decided it would be a good idea to underwrite a 96-page booklet called We on Death Row. The goal was to humanize inmates and shine a light on the hypocrisy of the death penalty. Six million copies of the glossy magazine insert featured interviews and professionally shot portraits of inmates on death row in Oregon, Missouri, North Carolina, Illinois, and Kentucky. Jimmy was interviewed for the project and talked about missing his son, how prison sounded desolate at night, and what a waste of time the hullabaloo over President Bill Clinton's sex scandal was. Of course, there was no mention in the booklet of Jimmy's or anyone else's crimes that resulted in their dates with the executioner. When the families of the victims caught wind of the ad campaign, outrage grew. Then the states became involved. The Attorney General of Missouri sued the company for fraud, saying Bennington lied about the reason for the interviews. A cool quote from someone close to the case here. They were in essence trying to sell sweaters on the backs of Missouri crime victims. The backlash continued with Sears canceling its contract with the company and pulling its merchandise from the shelves, and California approved a resolution calling for a boycott. Jimmy's only complaint about the whole ordeal was that the dark, blurry photo they ran of him didn't actually reflect his true inner beauty. With all of his appeals exhausted, investigators hoped that the doomed killer would come clean of his crimes. Through news articles still being written on the cases, an investigator sent a message to his nemesis, bringing up once again the pinnacle of serial killers in the Pacific Northwest. He's got to realize sooner or later that he's never going to get out of prison. Hopefully he'll sit down and clear his name all the way. When Bundy knew the game was up, he gave up. When a reporter told our friend Jimmy what the investigator had said, that didn't sit well with him. Tell him not to hold his breath. I have no intention whatsoever to spend my life in prison or die in prison. Two bad things never worked out as Jimmy planned. Detectives made a final visit to Jimmy Rohde as he lay in a prison infirmary in 2009. The ruthless henchman had been diagnosed with a cancerous tumor on his wretched heart. Maybe now he confessed his sins. The seasoned lawmen tried their best to convince him. They brought up his son. They noted how Bundy had come clean at the end. But nothing worked. An investigator later said, It just didn't sink in. He was focused on his appeal. He was convinced that his convictions would be overturned. When I reminded him that he was dying, he just kind of shrugged. Going in, the investigators knew the last visit was a long shot. They'd learned along the way a scoundrel like Jimmy Rohde, a.k.a. Caesar Baroni, never did anything for anyone else. But even if the state was dragging its feet when it came to keeping dates in the execution chamber, Jimmy's last address was on death row after all. Even if Jimmy wouldn't do anything for anyone else, the universe has a way of gifting us all. 49-year-old Jimmy Rohde, a.k.a. Caesar fucking Baroni, died on December 24th, 2009, a particularly magical Christmas Eve for all who had crossed his path. That will do it. 
That's a dark topic right there. Can you believe it? We're taking month and a half long hiatuses, apparently. I'm going to do, what am I, what's the math on that? Uh, I don't know. Less than 12 a year, that's for sure. Eight? I'm an idiot. But I'm back. And uh, with the help of writing and research done by Dark Topic's own crime reporter, F.T. Norton, Dark Topic is going to be more consistent from here on out for the 50th time. I'm promising that. Dark Topic is now hosted, co-written, and uh, produced by me, uh, recovering alcoholic and drug addict Jack Luna. It's been a long time since I had my fingerprints all over an episode of Dark Topic, and it felt right. That one felt right. I've been fucking with this show so much over the last couple of years, and I hope you'll all be happy to just get consistent, fleshed out, deeply researched, well-written episodes uh, with the old Dark Topic stripped-down feel to them. The operator has become incredibly busy with 911 Calls podcast and now True Crime Kent, so I'm snatching back the reins of Dark Topic's uh, production, though I love what the operator was bringing to each episode. I think at the heart of what people initially enjoyed about Dark Topic was a less polished feel, so no problem there. I can I can do that. And I really missed that part of the process. I did. I really don't believe in things happening for a reason. Um, you know, I've just seen, you know, I've seen kids get hit by cars and I've seen uh, really shitty people win the lottery. So that's all I need, you know, that's all I need right there to not believe that ha- things happen for a reason. I've seen kids die, little kids die. Um and uh, I've seen, like, really grouchy people live to be 105. So, I mean, and when they say saying everything happens for a reason just sounds uh, disingenuous. Is that a word I understand yet to me? Um, though, but I, I, this feels, something feels like it's going on here. Check this out. I, I, I never, if I'd never done Monstro, I wouldn't have met Sam Swenson. He deserves credit, so I'll say his actual name here. The operator, you know, it's fun. Fuck off if you don't like it. Just don't listen, right? To me, he's hilarious, the operator. Um, And if I hadn't decided to do Crime Machine, we never would have created 911 Calls and discovered that operator character. And 911 Calls is doing extremely well. Um, So, you know, I I don't believe things happen for a reason, but they certainly keep happening as long as you're making moves. You just have to, like, keep... You just got to keep doing shit. And if you don't do anything, nothing will happen, is what I'm saying. And I'm extremely happy to be where I'm, I am right now as a result of just continuing to do shit. Um, you know, things don't happen unless you do shit. That's, that's, my, that's the motto. That's my motto. F.T. Norton is an original listener of Dark Topic, and it's, uh, it's huge to have her on board. The episodes will be consistent at twice a month, and the cases will be original as she loves to dig up old crimes and dust them off to be, you know, remembered rather than exploited as too much of the current crime stories are. I've done it myself at times. It just felt gross afterwards. Um, you know, knowing that it's possible that a, a mother or a brother or a sister, or just family members, you know, are hearing you describe their, their child's death, it, just, it feels fucked up. Um, so I'm happy to go after the old stuff, the older crimes that, that maybe people have forgotten. I mean, I'm not going to solve a crime with a true crime podcast. That's not what I'm out to do. I'm not doing this with any delusion that I may be some kind of voice for the victims. Um, I'm doing this because I enjoy storytelling. I enjoy entertaining 
Uh, I enjoy shaming horrible people. Um, and bringing to life what the victims in these cases went through is really, it's an honor, though difficult and eerie at times. Uh, but I do believe it's important to look closely at what they went through. It's uh, not shy away from the reality of what became in them. And again, F.T. Norton is just the lady to make that possible with her deft touch. Deft touch? Is that a fucking, okay, adept? No, I am so stupid. Deft touch, her professionalism, and a true heart for victims of crime. Fucking computer just turned off. Great. Uh, Going to freeball it here. Wow. Anyways, it didn't turn off, but it's uh, it's frozen somehow here. Is this still recording? Who knows? Who knows if it is? Fucking, that's got a refurbished. I'm too deep now. I got a refurbished laptop. Holy fuck. Well, I'll give it a go. Anyways, for the most part, I'm, uh, I'm back to my roots with Dark Topic. Uh, at the moment, I'm sober, like three weeks clean, and I, I feel great. I turned 40, and I thought either I got either I turn it around here or I'm not going to see my grandkids. You know, I'm not going to have the, the energy to even play with my current kids or my future grandkids. I'm not having any more kids. Fuck that. I mean, I like kids. I like my kids. I just want to enjoy what I got. I, I, I've had enough. I'm good. I fucking hate kids. I hate how much of my life they take up. <laughs> so anyways, slowly the ship is veering from the rocks, but, you know, you never know. You just got to keep doing shit. That's positive. You know, keep doing shit and keep not doing shit. That's negative. There you go. Life solve. Keep doing shit. That's positive and keep not doing shit. That's bad for you. Life solved. I'm going to play a promo for my brother Leroy Luna's podcast here in a moment. Excuse me, that's illegal is its name. If you don't already know, it's a hardcore look at softcore crimes. And it's definitely worth checking out. There's a lot of stories about people taking shits on other people's lawns, uh, people spitting in pizzas and stuff. You know, low-level crimes. Um, Like Leroy, it's original and hilarious. Also super weird, completely inappropriate. Uh, A lot of what-the-fuck-is-going-on-here moments. It's really something else. I'm sorry, I'm free-balling here. I I love it. Um, And it's actually taking off a bit, so even more reason for Dark Topic to come back strong and you know, show who gives the headlocks and uh, wet willies and the noogies around here who's, whose little nipples, you know, get twisted in this part of town. <sighs> Fuck. All right. Eyes cocked, doors locked. Stay paranoid. I'll talk at you real soon. Thank you so much for hanging in there. Thank you for the support. I love you so much. Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I got to admit... After a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as The Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal, is available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.